The reading is Luke chapter 8. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Well, just a reminder that what we're doing in this sermon series is looking at what it means to be a Christian in our context, in our culture, in our society, and thinking through what it means to express our faith given the context in which we find ourselves here in Edinburgh, in Scotland, in the United Kingdom, in the 21st century, in 2019. And trying to examine what are some of the themes in culture and society that affect the way in which we think about ourselves, the way in which we think about other people, and the way in which we think about God. One of the most popular series of books in the last 10 years or so, is particularly popular uh, with teenagers, was the Divergent Trilogy by Veronica Throth. And it was set in a futuristic Chicago, became a film, and it focuses on five factions which define who people are. And there's a particular quote in that book that says this, factions before blood, more than family, our factions are where we belong. Factions before blood, more than family, our factions are where we belong. Now, one of the reasons that it was popular was that actually we live in a society, in a culture, which is increasingly defined by whichever faction we belong to. So in politics, with Brexit, you're a lever or remain. There's no middle ground. You're either a lever or you're a remainer. People speak about the haves and the have-nots. In the American election in 2016, apparently 80% of U.S. counties, and the states are all divided up into different counties, 80% of U.S. counties either gave Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton landslide victories. So if you voted for Trump, everybody around you, most of the people around you in the place where you lived also voted for Donald Trump. If you voted for Hillary Clinton, then again, most of the people around you in the district where you lived voted for Hillary Clinton. 
You were either for Trump or you were for Clinton. And if you were for Trump, you were really for Trump and you, or you were really for Clinton. In the same way that if you are a Remainer, you're really for remaining. And if you're a Lever, you are really a Lever. You see it on social media where people take aggressive positions and then seemingly surround themselves with followers who think the same as they do, so-called echo chambers. And when someone has a view that's different to ours, then it very quickly escalates, incredibly quickly, to quite vitriolic and hostile encounters with people that you don't actually know, but hold differing views to you. In the words of one writer, the special mark of the modern world is not that it's skeptical, but that it's dogmatic without knowing it. The special mark of the modern world is not that it's skeptical, but that it's dogmatic without knowing it. Now, the temptation to fear the other, and if we're honest, again, in our society, we are increasingly divided into people like us and people not like us. People who watch the same um, Netflix programs that we watch or don't watch the same Netflix programs as we do. People who listen to the same music as us or don't listen to the same music as us. Increasingly, we are divided into different factions. And the temptation to fear and suspect people who are different than us, well, it's getting worse, but it's always been there. It was there in first century Palestine at the time of Jesus. Uh, Judaism prided itself on who was in and who was out. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law that often Jesus came into contact with and, and into conflict with, they were very clear as to who was in and who was out. They were very good at drawing up over 400 rules that told you who was in and who was out. Because the Jews, remember, hundreds of years before, had been chosen by God to be a holy people, a chosen nation. And as the years had gone by, even though God had chosen them, not because they were particularly special, not because they were particularly holy, not because they were particularly righteous, not because they were particularly religious, he simply picked them because he picked them to be a visual aid of what it was like for God to be involved in the lives of people. Somehow over time, the Jews started to think of themselves as a holy people, a chosen nation. And over the years, decade by decade, century by century, they started to think that actually they were a holy people. They were a chosen nation. That therefore meant that they were better than other people. Therefore, that meant that they were holier than other people. Therefore, that meant that they were more special than other people, and they were important than other nations. And therefore, in that context, it's easy to miss the significance of the words that Jesus spoke in that passage that Rosemary read for us a few moments ago. In Luke chapter 8, verse 22, Jesus says these simple words, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Now, we read that and we think, okay, he's on this side of the lake, and he's telling them to go to the other side of the lake. This is not rocket science. He's on this side of the lake, and he says to the disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. But actually what Jesus was saying was deeply, deeply significant. Because to Jews, 
the other side of the lake, the other side of the Sea of Galilee was incredibly significant. It was the place where hundreds of years before, the nations, the tribes that had been living in the promised land that God gave to the people of Israel, the Canaanites, the seven nations had been driven out and had gone to live on the other side. And the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the other side of the lake, well, that's where the Canaanites lived. That's where the pagans lived. It was filled with pagan temples. Apparently, their ruins are still there. And the Jews at this time regarded the other side of the lake as a dark place. You know, we joke about the the enmity, the, the rivalry between Glasgow and Edinburgh. It's a bit like that. It's the other side. It, it's the other side. Whichever way you come from west to east or east to west, it's the other side. Some people say west is best. We know that east is, is far better because we live here. But that is a pale significance compared to how the Jews regarded the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a dark, demonic, pagan place. Evil, oppressive It was called elsewhere the Decapolis or the Ten Cities. It was where the Roman army had its headquarters with 6,000 troops stationed there. They didn't station themselves in Jerusalem. That wasn't where their headquarters were because they didn't want to rile the Jewish people by having Gentile troops in the city of Jerusalem. They made their headquarters on the other side because they knew that for the Jewish people, That was where Gentiles belonged. That's where pagans belonged. So that's where the Roman authorities made their headquarters, interestingly with a pig as the symbol of the Roman legion, which is significant in one incident in the life of Jesus. And for first century Jews, the other side was where nice people didn't go. The other side was where good religious people did not go. The last person who should go there was a rabbi with his followers. You did not go to the other side because that was dark, that was demonic, that was oppressive, that was evil. One writer, John Ortberg, makes the following observation. It's almost as if Jesus didn't know that this is the other side. It's almost as if he thinks it's his side. It's almost as if Jesus thought every side belonged to him or that he belonged to every side. So you see, what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is saying, is something that is incredibly revolutionary and countercultural. What Jesus is saying is that from now on, there is to be no us and them. From now on, there is to be no division between Jew and Gentile, between pagan, believer or unbeliever. Now with Jesus, there is no other side. There is no places where Jesus cannot go. There's no place that's beyond boundaries. There's no place that's out of limits. There's no place that's off limits because of who Jesus is and because of what he does. We always want to break people, society down to the us and them. Jesus is saying from now on, in Jesus... There is no other side. So the disciples go. Some of them 
uh, are professional fishermen, well used to sailing on these waters. Others, most of them, are tax collectors. They're landlubbers. In fact, the Hebrews were a landlubbing nation. Even though they were surrounded on, by water on two sides, with the Mediterranean on one side and, and the Sea of Galilee, there was a huge... Uh, it's like one of the great um, Michigan lakes, uh, uh, the great lakes of North America. It's enormous. Even though they were surrounded by water, most of them spent most of their time on dry land. And the reason for that was because of their theology about land and water. The sea was always symbolic for Jews of evil, threatening to destroy God's good creation. And the creation story itself, in Genesis chapter 1, we read these words, the Spirit of God brings order to the chaos of the deep. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So, for a first century Jew, the water was symbolic of chaos, it was symbolic of evil, it was symbolic of confusion, it was symbolic of everything that was out to destroy God's good creation. And therefore, it's significant that at various points in the history of Israel, God parts the Red Sea for Moses and leads the people to safety. God parts the River Jordan for Joshua and gives them the promised land. The water and the evil is synonymous in Jewish thinking with each other. The water and evil is being overcome. They get a certain distance across the lake. And something starts to happen. Luke uh, calls it a whirlwind. Matthew, in his account of this, calls it a shaking. The Greek word is seismos, that we get the word seismic from. And apparently the geography of the Sea of Galilee lends itself to sudden weather changes. The sea itself is 680 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by hills, and sudden violent storms are common. And it's so bad, this storm is so violent, that the professional fishermen who have fished these waters for years, some of them, they know these waters, they are absolutely terrified. And in verse 24, they simply say to Jesus, Master, Master, we're going to drown. They're frightened for their lives. They're scared stiff. It's so bad that they think they're going to die. Maybe like me, you know what it is to be on a boat and be so terrified, so scared that you think you are going to die. I will never forget being in a cross-channel ferry in a Force 10 gale. It was unbelievable. Uh, we went up, and then we went down. And then we went up, and then we, for eight hours. For eight hours. And once we'd gone up and then we went down, we then started to go to one side and then we started to go to the other side. And this went on for eight hours. I started to be ill, very ill, very, very, very ill. I was ill for eight hours and I was certain, absolutely convinced that I was going to die. I saw bits of my stomach that I didn't know existed. Some of you didn't want to know that, but I did. It was absolutely horrendous. And I was sick for eight hours as we went up and then down. And then to one side, even now, some of you are starting to look a bit green. 
there thinking about this, but it was absolutely, it went on. And because we'd just gone out of, it was uh, Plymouth to Roscoff, and we'd just gone out of the harbour, I knew that there was no turning back. I knew that this was going to last for eight hours. And I was utterly convinced that I was going to die because it just felt horrendous. That is something of what these followers of Jesus are feeling. But they're not in a cross-channel ferry. They're in a small fishing boat. And they know it's going to happen. And I remember lying on the bunk and just feeling the boat go up. And we just hung in the air. Hung in the air. And there was this boom as we came down. And then we went to one side and then the other side. And then we went back again. Eight hours. I thought... I was going to die. So I know what these disciples felt like. And where is Jesus? Jesus, we're told, is asleep. Jesus, we're told, is having a kip. In Mark's account, he goes even further and tells us that Jesus is asleep on a pillow. There's that little bit of detail that he's not just asleep. He's asleep on a pillow. He's made himself comfy. He's snuggled down. He's very happy. The boat's going all over the place. People think they're going to die. And Jesus, he's just snoring. Jesus is asleep. He's just going, yeah, it's just nice, gentle rocking motion of the water has just rocked him to sleep. And he's just asleep and he's absolutely happy. And maybe he's a bit frustrated by the disciples waking up and saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And Jesus, we're told, simply gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. Luke tells us he speaks to the raging waters. He doesn't do it dramatically. He doesn't do it with, you know, he doesn't get a keyboard player to play the Holy Spirit synth noise. He just stands up. And a bit like somebody speaking to a a small puppy. Or, or a, 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 a naughty toddler. He just says, be quiet. Get down. And the wind and the waves obey him. Paul made the point this morning. The one who made everything. The one through whom all things were made. The wind and the waves still recognize his voice. And Jesus doesn't need hysteronics, doesn't need sound effects, doesn't need anything. He just speaks. Be quiet. Get down. And the raging waters subside. God's sovereign power is unleashed. The forces of evil are roused, threatening, and angry. Jesus speaks, and they obey. He rebukes the wind and the waves. But then comes a second rebuke. And at first glance, it appears a bit harsh, if we're honest. Because the wind and the waves subside. The disciples perhaps stop throwing up over the side of the boat. They're a bit relieved and they say thanks to Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and says a simple phrase. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? And what Jesus is saying is... Don't you know who I am? Don't you trust me? 
Don't you recognize that I'm in control of this situation? Don't you think that I can control this situation? Don't you know who is in the storm with you? And their response is, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. It's a very simple, very short incident in the life of Jesus. But actually, it speaks of a very profound truth. Where do we think Jesus is with us tonight? Is Jesus saying to you and to me, perhaps what he said to the disciples, where's your faith? I.e., don't you trust me? Do you know who I am? Do you know who is in the storm with you? Do you know that you can know my peace even in the middle of the storm? That I am the one who controls the wind and the waves? That no matter what you're facing, no matter what situation you find yourself in now, no matter how drastic, no matter how fearful you are, no matter how afraid you are, no matter how dangerous things may feel to you, no matter how out of control things might feel to you, no matter how bleak things might appear to you, where is your faith? Do you know who I am? Do you know who is in the storm with you? And are you willing to trust me? Are you willing to trust that I am the one who knows what he's doing? That I am the one who knew what he was doing when he said, let's go over to the other side of the lake. That this storm hasn't come as a surprise to me. This storm hasn't come as a shock to me. Even though I'm not a long or short range weather forecaster, Jesus is saying, I know what's going to happen. And nothing that happens to you will surprise me. And nothing that happens to you is bigger and is nothing that I can't handle. And Jesus says very simply to you and to me, where is your faith? That because of who Jesus is, there is now no other side. There are now no places that are off limits to the person of Jesus. That now there is no us and them but there is only Emmanuel, God, with us, even in the middle of the storm. I don't know what situations each of us is facing in this room. Most of us, if we're honest, don't know what the situations are in the people around us. But there is one person who knows each and every situation that all of us in this place tonight are facing and that person is Jesus and Jesus says to you and to me do you trust me Jesus says to you and to me do you know who I am Jesus says to you and to me do you recognize who is in the boat with you and do you recognize who is able to calm the storm to have authority over the storm and to, is able to give you peace even in the middle of the storm. No matter how fearful, no matter how terrified, 
you might feel, I am with you. As Nate mentioned, this is the start of our pledge, where as a church we start to respond together as to what we think God is saying to us over the next five years. Maybe planting three churches, maybe developing a wellness center, maybe increasing our influence in different parts of society. And at one point in the strategy document, it says this is not business as usual. This is part of a vision to help change Scotland. Now, maybe like me, you've read that and you thought, blimey, that's a bit ambitious. I'm not sure we're up to that. I'm not sure that P's and G's can do that. Well, the good news that you need to hear tonight is P's and G's can't do it. P's and G's aren't up to it. Dave Richards, the rector, certainly is not up to it. But Jesus is up to it. Jesus can work through us to help us, to enable us to do all that we believe God is calling us to do. I came across this quote from a theologian called Hans Kung. He said it this way. A church which pitches its tents without constantly looking for new horizons, which does not constantly strike camp, is being untrue to its calling. We must play down our longing for certainty, accept what is risky, live by improvisation, and experiment. That's what we believe God is calling us to do over the next five years. You know, the easy thing to do would just be to sit, literally, on our laurels. To stay exactly as we are. To think, well, we've come this far. We've not done too badly. We're one of the largest churches in Scotland. We've got some great children's work. We've got some great youth work. Our music is great. Preaching's okay. Um, but we're quite happy as we are. We've got a nice building. We've done two church plants in the last five years. We've got a meal on a Saturday. We've got the, the best babies and toddlers group in the city, according to Edinburgh for Under Fives. The easy thing to do would be to just to sit back and go, well, okay, we've done enough. But that isn't what God is calling us to do. God is calling us to stretch our tent. God is calling us to expand our vision of who God is and what God wants to do in us and through us. God is calling us to expand our vision and expand our expectations so that even though we feel we're not up to it, that's precisely the right place where we should start. Because God always takes imperfect, fragile, weak human beings who think they're not up to it and he takes people like you and people like me and then he makes something incredible out of it so that when something incredible happens and people then take a step back and look and see what God has done then they go well to be frank it was only going to happen with God because look at that lot I mean just take a look go on just turn around Look at the front, turn around, look to your left, look to your right. If this is going to happen, the only way it's going to happen is because God has done it. The only way that it can happen 
is through God moving in us. The only way that can happen is as we rest and depend upon the Spirit of God, is as we give ourselves over to God, as we surrender and allow Him to fill us, and that we might be obedient to what He's saying. And Jesus says simply to you and to me this evening, where is your faith? Do you know who I am? Do you know who is with you? Do you know who is with you in the storm? Do you know that I am the one through whom all things were made? I am the one through whom all creation came into being. I'm the one that can speak to the wind and the waves and they will fall quiet. Three church plants, a wellness center, everything else that we've outlined, nothing to God. Huge to us, but to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, child's play. And if we think it's too much for us, that's precisely where God wants us to start. Because we recognize that of ourselves, we can't do it. Because if we thought we could, that would be quite dangerous. We have to rely upon God. And we have to recognize and humble ourselves and say, God, only if you say and only if you do, because we want the glory to go to you and not to us. And we want, if in five or six years' time there are three church plants and a wellness center, for people to go, well, only God, only God, because we've only done it because of God. And because it's what we've called, we've, we've sensed him calling us to do. So maybe we're facing something as individuals this evening. Maybe it's a storm in our lives. And Jesus says to you and to me tonight, where's your faith? Do you know who I am? Do you believe that I am who I say I am? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And the question for you and for me is will we do what the wind and the waves do? Will we obey him? Will we trust him? And will we recognize Jesus even in the storm?